When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast with me, Vas Christodoulou. This week's episodes both have a psychology theme. The second is a history of brainwashing and thought control with psychoanalyst Daniel Pick. And this episode stars Dr. Tara Porter, a psychologist whose new best-selling book, You Don't Understand Me, is a guide to life for girls and young women. She told us all about it in a live stream event hosted by one of the UK's preeminent psychotherapists, Julia Samuel. So first of all, Tara, do you want to say what led you to write You Don't Understand Me? Hello, yes. Um, What led me to write it? I guess I've worked in eating disorder service and so as a result I've ended up seeing lots of girls and young women in therapy. And I guess over the years of doing that work, I began to notice, you know, commonalities. Every girl is different, but, you know, the commonalities, the themes, the narrative, the stories began to be sort of overlapping. And, and often, often I would write to, uh, after a therapy session, if I was struggling with something with a young person, I would write them a therapeutic letter and I try and draw out some of those ideas that we've been struggling with. And I guess some of those therapeutic letters formed the basis of this book. Mm. You know, and I was really aware that what I was seeing in my clinical practice, seeing lots and lots of girls, was also reflected in the statistics in, in the country that, you know, when we nail down, we all know that there's an increase in mental health problems amongst our young people. But when you really look at the statistics, most of that increase is taken up by an increase amongst teenage girls. It's them who are who are causing the increase, if you like, the, the bulk of the increase. And sometimes, you know, in, in, when I was in therapy, when I was working with families, sometimes among, in my personal life, people would say, well, what book would you recommend for me to give my daughter? What would you, what would you recommend? And, and there, there wasn't anything. I had lots of books to recommend for parents. And so being someone who's always written and always uh, made sense of the world by writing things down, I started to write this and, and here we are. <laughs> here it is. And that makes sense in a way that it would come directly from your experience of writing letters to these young girls. And in a mm. way, you've written, in a way, a loving letter to all young girls and, and their parents so that they can understand themselves and what's happening to them. And why do you think, I mean, what has changed in the world for young girls that they in particular teenage girls that their their anxiety their eating disorders their self-harming statistics are increasing and and, and increased dramatically since covid haven't they yeah really dramatically over covid and i think there's a number of changes in society and in my book i'm really keen to look at how you know influences in society and communities and families and schools get played out in an individual girl I don't want a girl to feel she's at fault or at blame for her mental health problems so I'm I'm kind of curious about those 
because every girl is part of a context, aren't they? It's, I think we, we, in the past, because of theories and kind of CBT, we've very much individualized people's mental health. And I think one of the things, I've interrupted you, but I think one of the things that is really useful for us to acknowledge is that it, every individual is part of a system, their family system, their school system, their cultural system, their country system, and that will influence their mental health and all of their health. Absolutely. And I think and, and I think we'll, people are aware of that in their day-to-day life. And when you talk to parents about what's, you know, what's wrong with teenagers, why they're struggling so much, why they're suffering so much, you know, what, what parents say is, oh, it's the blooming phone. That's the first thing they say. Oh, Social media. Phone. Social media, the phone, the internet. And I guess that is one of the changes that has happened over the generation. And, and, and I think it's really, it's a really complex and interesting one because there are things which can be really supportive about having a phone and having social media when young people use it to connect and when people, young people use it to um, enhance their values in some way of, of, of kindness or connection or being interested in some niche interest which perhaps they don't have in their town or village which they can they can connect to other people who are interested in that but often the phone is used for comparison and competition and and that can be very harmful so I think the phone is one way that we can think about the differences but I don't think it's the only one and I think as parents were really quite keen to put all the society's ills into the phone and the internet um, and not look at other things what are those other things yeah one of of the chapters in my book as you know, is is about education in schools. So I think over the last generation, of the generation I've been working um, with young people, I've just seen a seismic change in the way people talk about school, people in society, people in families, and the young people, where they they really begun, girls particularly, to internalise that idea that their value is somehow caught up with the grades and qualifications that they get and I call that in my book the sort of output model of education where it's all about the output and you know uh, my personal experience going to parents evenings and things like that is that GCSEs get started talking people start talking about them years and years in advance it's not about the process of education it's all about the output and I think girls are really sensitive to those sorts of messages they want to please people they want to be a good girl so I think that's another important change and I think the the other change that I talk about in the book and actually got quite a lot of media uh, interest was about parenting and the way we parent and and how parenting has become like a verb which is and I think as parents we can absorb some of those messages about education and 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 put too much emphasis on how our, what our children are doing rather than being with our children, which can be, which isn't protective for mental health, I don't think. So I think those are some of the changes. I mean, there's other changes in, I think, in, in relation to sex and love and relationships as well, but those are the changes that I really notice in my clinical practice. And in some way, as you're talking, I'm kind of aware that girls and women, although life isn't equal, we have more status, we have more opportunities, that we have more freedoms, we have more choices. And in some way, the pressure, performance pressure, the sort of perfectionist pressure also comes from the 
um, wanting to be successful women out in the world and not domestic. So in some ways, that is a big psychological shift. So, you know, my mother's generation, I think they, the, I think 80% of women stopped working the minute they got married. Mm. My generation, I think it was 50%. And I don't know what the stats are now. Well, 50% of the population of, is working women. Is, is 50% of the pop, of working population is women. So many of them are, are parents. So it's also kind of uh, transitional psychological pressures about marriage and institutions and what life what what makes up a good life isn't it it is yes um, seismic changes for our generation and I think the the word in the in your sentence which I'm really interested in one of the words is opportunities because I think as as parents it's about thinking about how you give young people opportunities without them becoming expectations people have choices and opportunities but they feel like empowering gifts in a way rather than deliverables that they have to kind of meet exactly and I think that's a sort of tipping point with with children and young people or, or in parenting where you're giving them opportunities you're giving them opportunities you're giving up oh I'm going to become an expectation and I think yeah so I, I'm kind of interested in that and I think girls internalize and I think as psychotherapists and psychologists we've always always kind of recognized that that girls tend to internalize hurt more difficulties struggles whereas boys can tend to act them out and although those are generalizations there's some there's some truth in those and and I guess those changes in society have played through to the individual to come you know I mean the, the narrative the common narrative I hear amongst girls and young women is that they don't feel good enough they don't feel clever enough fitty enough smart enough they don't feel they're working hard enough they don't feel they're good enough friend you know all of those sort of things that good girl mentality and that actually is a perfect kind of segue into attachment and parenting and the you know there's a wonderful psychologist called Donald Winnicott who you talk about in your book who I talk about in my book who talked about the good enough parent and also the good enough child and you talk about the good enough family life and mm. that there is no such thing as perfect and that actually families are messy chaotic um as you said they don't look pretty but and they move on the spectrum of functional and dysfunctional depending on what's happening internally and externally but as long as there is good enough parenting and what you and I understand is secure attachment, that that is protective, that does allow them to manage and navigate the kind of brickbacks of life. So do you want to describe for parents or people listening what secure attachment might look like and, and what insecure attachment might look like? Yeah, I mean, I guess in, in my book, what I really um, explore that I think is really important in, in adolescence is that idea of rupture and repair. But um, so a, a secure attachment is when a young person feels like somebody loves and cares them and has their back. And as you go through, unless you say it doesn't have to be perfect, and they, I, I reference the still space experiment. And if you haven't seen that, that's a really extraordinary thing to observe. I would recommend that everybody if you do one thing from this, <laughs> go and watch that Google still face experiment. It's really useful to see about how when we're there and being with the child, being with the baby, they develop a sense of somebody caring for them and it and they're mattering to somebody. And it, and it feels like it builds a framework in, in 
a brain that then that young person can grow up and have other relationships with other people. And then so you put this whole lot of work into developing that attachment relationship and then along comes adolescence and the sort of developmental task of adolescence is separation and individuation. And so, but in a sense, the young person has then got the internal framework to, to manage relationships and then they have to start to extricate themselves from the, the, the parental relationship and we as parents have to let them go. And, and the rupture and repair is really about how far you go and then coming back and the arguments and the set and the, the differences and how and how those are negotiated and managed. But with with the rupture and the repair, it's really that idea of you're preparing your child for the future life where life isn't perfect, where their boss isn't always going to agree with them and all their colleagues and the man on the bus and all those different things. So when we when we overparent our children, when we try and manage every difficulty for them and and provide that kind of idea of perfect environment we're actually not preparing them for the sort of hurly burly of life you know that the other people aren't like that and and in a way what I understand from you is that in the secure attachment as opposed to the kind of insecure which is unpredictable through that iterative process of attuning and responding to your baby you build the networks of the brain for connection. So every baby is a kind of template that is ready for connection and seeks connection. And in that freeze, um, that what's it called? That video, you see the child, the child getting very distressed when the when the mother the still face, yeah, still face. Um, and so, but in some ways, by building that secure, you know, good enough, not hundred percent consistent trusting relationship that the child knows that you will come back that you knows that they will pick you up and that builds that template so that it's strong enough and robust enough that when they want to kind of push you away and shite I hate you they that is in a way an expression of trust because if this was a child that had insecure attachment, ambivalent attachment, anxious attachment, they probably wouldn't dare to say, I hate you, because they're not going to be so sure that their parents are going to say, I hate you too, but in the end you'll have the, the, you'll have the repair where you hug each other, you talk about what went wrong, you have a pizza and you watch Netflix together and you kind of like each other more from the intensity of the repair after the intensity of the fight. That's absolutely right, Julia. And that's certainly been my experience with working with children who've, you know, been seriously abused, that it's very difficult for them to, to risk arguing or fighting with their parents because they're not sure that their parents are going to make up with them. But of course, that really is a bad framework to be going out into the world and experiencing the rest of humanity, you know, so the the you're absolutely right that the, in the struggle, in the rupture, in the repair, if something important happens. Builds the resilience. Yeah. Um, I interrupted again, not good for a therapist. Uh, <laughs> so when you're talking about the parenting and kind of wanting to protect your children and doing kind of over-parenting or, you know, I mean, I, I saw a stat that the millennials and all the generations since have been more parented than any generation in history. And as as you said, parenting only became a verb in the 70s. I mean, I definitely didn't, I wasn't parented. I was kept safe and alive and had good enough parents. But I mean, 
I think you could safely say it was more benign neglect. Yes, I think that's right. I think actually the active parenting came later. I think it came probably in the in the 90s and the, the 2000s. I think so. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, well, it started being about, you know, you look if you look to a, a toy catalogue, nearly every toy is educational um, and every activity is the benefits of it like parenting is this kind of skill set yeah or or building bricks that you have to you know get a bit of this and a bit of that and put it all together um rather than that sense of being with and and caring for and listening to and and watching out for and fighting with (laughs) and and doing nothing with doing nothing with being bored with having fun with, you know, just mucking about with rather than some kind of excellent thing. We're going to go on a picnic with a perfect picnic and the perfect picnic hamper and all that. I mean, I remember going to sports days with my with my children and I brought a box with sort of crisps and sausage rolls and carrots. And then there'd be these amazing kind of hampers from four <laughs> tables and you know, and I was probably under parenting in quite a bad way but you know they were perfectly I don't know anyway I just thought that was quite funny yes this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture with my subscription I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code how to just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code how to to dive into the world of the arts like never before. So looking at parenting styles, what you've described in the book is that, you know, if you have authoritative parenting, you win the lottery of parenting. And it doesn't, that sounds a bit mistrunchable, authoritative parenting, but what is the happy medium between benign neglect and overparenting? Yeah, I mean, I guess in my, in my book, I'm trying to explain parents to teenagers. So I'm yes. trying to give, you know, teenagers, here's your user guide to your parents. This is, this is what you need to know about your parents. Yeah. I mean, a lot of parents that I've worked with, have co- or some parents who I've worked with in the past have contacted me and said, oh my goodness, this is quite, it's discombobulating as a parent, I think, to read it from that angle. But I guess that um, to go back to your question, I mean, authoritative parent is different from authoritarian parents. So authoritarian parents are, are cold. Generally, there isn't a lot of warmth in the relationship and there's lots of rules and authoritative parents. There are rules, but the rules are negotiated and kindly applied. There's a lot of warmth there. There's time for spontaneity and fun. So those are the sort of two dimensions. It's a kind of warm, cold dimension or, or a, a kind of lax and firm dimension and the kind of when you look at the research it's kind of warm and firm so between my hand and my elbow that's not a very good way of explaining it uh that that, that kind of is the winning lottery ticket for, for kids but I kind of 
trying to explain to them, you know, how, you know, those different types of things, you know, being subject to lots of rules or if your parents are a little bit cold, what that might feel like for them. I'm trying to give them that sense that I would hopefully give to young people in therapy that that I understand how that feels, that that's, um, and yeah, and this might, this might be how it feels for you and this is why. And also in some ways, my book, Every Family Has a Story, I have 12 touchstones for family. Yeah. In some ways it links to that, doesn't it? About, it really does, yeah. You know, I, I talked about collaborative power, you know, so that it's the parents have the power and they make the decisions. You don't want children to have too much power because it's overwhelming. But you also need clear boundaries for particular things so that the children feel safe, that they have the boundaries to hit against, but also to create time to have fun that they can create and so that the children feel that they're heard and then and that they're known and that they influence the, the shape of the family. Yeah, and I think your touchstones are brilliant, Julia. I, I love that chapter in your book. Um, and it does, it, it, that idea of kind of warm and rules, it, you know, reiterates a lot of that about, you know, power. That's another one of your touchstones, how that is negotiated. And I think that's a key thing for adolescents, really, isn't it? Because over the years where I'm writing this book for young people, you know, sort of early teens to early 20s, you know, parents go from a position where they're pretty much deciding everything for their child, um, you know, probably not what they're wearing in their early teens, but, you know, pretty much almost everything else until the, the young person is completely independent. That's the that's the goal, right? To create an independent young person who's able to go off in the world and and have their own, own life. And so that idea of power and how that gets negotiated and how the young person gets their voice, so that clear communication, that's another of your touchstones, um, you know, how all that stuff happens over those years is really it's really complicated and it's it's a pull and a push often and uh, and difficulties but often we the families we see in therapy I think is when those that negotiation has, has got a bit stuck or it's gone the wrong, wrong way or one person in, in the in the family isn't keen to you know let go of their parents or the parent isn't keen to let go of the child or all those sorts of things. And in some ways with your moving your hands like that I think it's rigidity isn't it that one of the difficulties in the process of adaptation with adolescents for the adolescent and for the parents is that it's uncomfortable and the process of change is uncomfortable. And you can't have fixed rules like this is what it's going to be, but that you have to kind of allow yourself to flex and adapt and try things out and agree together, but have enough good enough communication that you can sort of say okay I let you out you know we agreed 10 o'clock last week but you came back at midnight so you know how you kind of work that out as a family without it being punitive so that they can you know giving them roots and wings that they can learn to be adults for themselves and and that incredibly you know you describe for young girls that incredibly difficult negotiation of how they kind of feel safe by feeling close enough to their parents but also go out of their comfort zone to experiment what it's like to be an adult and that that is such a painful kind of chaotic unknown business for both the parents and the young girls. I think in, uh, in my book I, I talk about it as a pendulum and pendulum of adolescence that they swing away from the parents. I don't realise I use my have so much um they swing away from parents and then then they get a little bit scared and they swing back towards their parents and that can be very 
confusing for a parent, you know, that one minute they're stomping off and saying they want to... Slamming the door, I hate you. And then they swing back when, you know, something happens outside of the house or with one of their friends, they feel a bit scared, they're not quite sure, they're not sure about their future, and then they swing back and they want to spend more time with you. And that that kind of process goes on again and again and again, doesn't it, through the teenage years. But also, you know, what's appropriate at 14 isn't appropriate at 16, isn't appropriate at 18, isn't appropriate at 20. So you constantly have to be renegotiating those rules. Yeah. And change is a collective business. Everybody has to change in the family, don't they? The other siblings change as their teenage siblings have more freedom and it changes the dynamic amongst the siblings, probably with the grandparents. I mean, it's a... It's a real kind of old turbulent time and turbulent time emotionally. And that's kind of probably my biggest question with you is given that mental health disorders are spiking for teenage girls. Can you talk about emotionally what is happening, what's happening hormonally? How can they be an active agent in their mental health? How can they protect their mental health? And what are the types of things that you see, this is about five questions, you see going wrong that it would be useful for our listeners and viewers to kind of understand so that they then have some ideas of what they can intervene? Because what I know is all difficulties is the earlier the intervention, the better the outcome. Phew, where to start? That's okay. a whole book of stuff. I don't know. Well, that is your book. <laughs> that is my whole book, isn't it? I guess. What, what I want to think about really in answer to that question is the, the idea we were talking about earlier is that a lot of girls and, and of course, you know, everyone listening to this who has a teenage girl will have different stuff going on. And, and of course, this isn't going to be the perfect answer for all of them because they'll all have different struggles, you know. Um, but there is a sort of one of the very strong narratives coming through at the moment is, is not feeling good enough. And I guess from that perspective it's about how we help young people understand the pressure that they're under and have a healthy relationship to it and not to internalize too much of that narrative that there is sort of one path in life that you 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 have to take and 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 find really find their individual path I feel some more hand movements coming on in my book. I talk about how the education system is channeling girls into this idea of academic qualifications. And actually what I think education should be like is a broadening. Um, and I think that's a really important thing for parents to think about, how they support their, their girl feeling uh, feeling good enough. And I don't think this is about giving them sort of, sort of fake opportunities to fail, which I think has become quite a popular thing in, in some school settings now. Well, they're so used to getting all these A's and stuff that we have to give them uh, some opportunities to fail. But I think it's having opportunities not to compete and not to, when, you know, so much of their social life is on social media, and that is often a huge sort of comparative and competitive environment with likes and Instagram and posts and all this sort of thing. And uh, the education system is set up to sort of compete and the, the race to the most qualifications. I think it's really important in a home setting not to do that. I guess another thing that occurs to me when you were, when you were asking your question was about the term we use in psychology a lot is emotional regulation and trying to find a balance in emotional regulation that 
I worry about girls when they're not expressing their feelings at all and it's all going into a kind of sometimes it can all go into this idea about being perfect and and everything all their difficulties go into making the perfect life to try and make life predictable curated life a curated life and I also worry about girls when they're spilling out their emotions everywhere and there's no sort of sense of um holding them together I mean so what what are we trying to do there we're trying to get I can take this back to your touchstones again but you know we're trying to get that expression of emotion the sort of honest conversations without it being kind of too much or too little but a, a kind of balance of, of you know opportunities expressing emotion expressing difficulties and as parents I think the task often is about being the background to your 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 teenager's life and keeping an eye on what's going on and knowing what's whilst in the process of change what's kind of what's going on with your young person and if they're struggling on that dimension that that their emotions are sort of spilling out all over the place or uh, they're not being expressed at all then that would be when I would be worried and what to you know what to do about that that's that's complicated and there's lots in my book about that about how to how to keep them to engage them in the process of having the basics in place so the basics in place would be things like sleep and nutrition and and relationships and and all those sorts of things and then I didn't catch that Julia sorry and exercise I mean I do think the basics you know those sort of pillars of nutrition sleep connection and exercise the four of them together kind of a worth eight if you know what I mean you buy one get lots free if you see what I mean and that in that capacity to self-regulate, if you have those four pillars in place, you're much more likely to be able to have a kind of insight and connection to balance your kind of crazy thoughts with your rational mind, rather than your thinking, making your thoughts, your feelings worse. You know, we often want to tidy up our thoughts and Marie Kondo, our feelings and Marie Kondo them to like, like sort of be tidy in our drawers but actually if we can allow our thoughts and our our feelings and our emotions and then be aware of our thoughts and see where they compete and see where we can use our thoughts to have agency and what you what do you call it you call it having emotional competence Mm. then we are much more likely to make better decisions and have better outcomes mm, I mean one of the little uh, a few little not really exercises but just frameworks for young people in my book to try and understand what's going on for them and, and this that one the kind of idea of an emotional mind and a rational mind two circles and there's sort of an overlapping in a Venn diagram and in the middle is your wise mind and I and like trying, that. yeah trying to get I didn't make that up I can't remember who that that comes from I think it comes from the DBT work but um in your you know when girls are very much in their emotional mind you know that that kind of idea of emotion spilling out everywhere and then in their rational mind that idea of um, trying to keep life tidy and and trying to be a good girl and trying to be perfect and keep all um all the emotion at bay and actually trying to combine the two and trying to help them listen to their emotion and listen to their their rational mind and to put the two together and make wise decisions that's that's what I would call emotional competence and I mean that's a useful 
tool for us as adults as well. And some days we even manage it. <laughs> yes. And actually you could you, you could journal it, couldn't you? I mean, DBT for people is dialectal behavioral therapy, which yeah, we won't get into, but, but you know, any adult, I think one of the things about teenagers that comes through in your book is that, you know, all of our emotions are contagious. So the kind of the teenage girl can kind of in, ignite a teenage mother who's maybe menopausal, who may have a sick mother or a, a, a teenage father. So that, you know, the, the, the magnification of feelings through the family, through a young person's adolescence is incredibly kind of hot, isn't it? So anything that families that can do that can both find ways of expressing them, but also kind of reducing them through walking together, playing sport together, having fun together, doing, you know, doing stuff together can kind of release some, a lot of that stress, can't it? Yeah, so it, it really can. And, and often parents, but often then parents will say, well, they don't want to spend any time with me. And I, I think that the answer to that is, is to just to be there in the background, you know, as a kind of benign presence. And I, I, you know, with a, your cup of tea or your newspaper, or watching the TV or whatever it is, and 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 they will come if you're if you're open to that, open to talking. You're not going to give them too much advice. Um, you're going to listen. And it's complicated. I mean, you know, as parents, we've invested so much in our, our you know, with babies. Is it you're sleep deprived, exhausted? You didn't work, and then hopefully, if if that's your choice, you go back to work and you kind of have phases which are very happy and easy but you know they have kind of sucked you dry if you like money time energy worry and then they don't want to speak to you it's like what I know. And you kind of know it's coming but it feels like that is not the deal <laughs> because I've given this to you and now somehow you owe me and those are terrible resentments that can build up and toxic relationships that can build up with their parents when they kind of feel owed. And what comes through in your book is that if we can kind of navigate this interdependence, this negotiation, allowing our children to kind of become developing adults, because they're not really fully adults until they're about 25, that they do come back. And you say that at the end in a very kind of hopeful note. Do you want do you want to sort of talk about that a bit? Yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking, I don't know if it's really talking about that, but the, the zeitgeist of parenting at the moment, I don't know if this is true or not, but just what I observe is that I think we think like we're all getting kind of younger. I mean, we're not actually younger, but we kind of more, when you look at the crowd at Glast Glastonbury and the people who were singing at Glastonbury, you know, it, it's it's quite a common thing as a parents of teenagers to be at festivals, for example, which seems like quite different from a year, from a generation ago. And so I think this generation of parents, if, if I'm reading the temperature correctly, and I might not um, feel like, hey, look, we're cool. We still listen to cool music. We're at Glastonbury. We why, are not, why aren't you talking to us? Why aren't you talking? Don't you realise how cool I am? And of course, teenagers aren't interested in that. They, they just want you to be in the background so that they can get on with, with their, their life. And you have to take that kind of that, that backward step, really. So that, I think that's a struggle then. Because, um, also, it's a dance, though. It's not just a backward step, you know, because it's a moving in and a moving out. It's like being there, allowing, moving out. It's like 
putting your needs down and theirs in the forefront. And sometimes they really need you and sometimes they really don't. Yes, it's, it's, you're right. It's, that's it. I mean, I make the dance analogy in my book. It's, you do. Yeah. yeah, but that's right. But I was thinking it from the parents' point of view. Um, and sometimes when I'm talking to parents about their young people, I, I, I'm reminded of that book. I don't know if you remember it. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, of course. And um, the idea was that women come to men with their problems. And it's from about 20, if you haven't read it, it's from about 20, 20, 25 years ago. It's called Grey, wasn't it? And so it's quite gendered. It's quite stereotypical it's you know it's not a wonderful book but anyway the core idea was that men women come to men with their problems and men try and solve their problems and I think taking the temperature of this generation of parents and we feel like we're younger or cooler or more in touch with our teenagers we've invested more into them as you say and we feel like they should when they come to us that we have the solutions to their problems and Every day when I'm working with young people, I have to remind myself not to jump in with a solution to their problems because obviously I'm coming seeing a young person with anxiety or with who is very sad or with an eating disorder. And, and I have to listen. I have to really, 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 really listen. And, and for them to know I get them, them as a person, I get their problem. I get all the new nuances of their problem. I've really delved into it. And, and then sometimes I'm allowed to offer a little sprinkle of advice. So I, will, I argue that maybe sometimes parents are from Mars and teenagers are from Venus, that teenagers come to us with their problems and they want, they want somebody to listen and to empathise. And what, we, what parents tend to do is, oh, I know about this. I know about this. You need to do this. And, of course, none of us want that. No, we do not. <laughs> It's incredibly annoying and actually not that helpful. I think that's a lovely analogy, actually. So I'm looking at the time. Could you talk about women's sexuality and nurturing sexuality in four minutes? No. Give me one good thing about women developing their sexuality. I think one of the the things that I worry about with this generation of teenage girls, and in one way they're much more sexually expressive and we've you know got freedom more so, <laughs> Roe versus Wade takes the Americans back I, I accept yeah. but there's so, there's so much positive stuff going on in the expression and the allowance of women's sexuality over you know over the last when well, I suppose since the pill came it's been a, a kind of growing a growing phenomenon but the now we also have this awful thing of internet porn and that has so influenced women's and men's sexual relationships and and so we've got this positive thing going on and then we've got this very draining and difficult thing and I think that is really the struggle for in relationships and in love and sex for the young women as I see it and I think uh, and for lots of young men who I see who struggle with addiction well, not even addiction, even, you know, at a le- I think there are men who obviously who struggle with porn addiction, but having learned about something, something that's beautiful and wonderful and about intimacy and fun and lots of other things, but have, having learned about it in just a way which doesn't show that and, and just gives them a completely different roadmap for expressing yeah. that. Um, it's like that they've learned to drive by watching Top Gear 
and they're expecting to drive a car across Africa with an armchair on its roof or something like that. It's so clever, yeah. Um, so it's 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 completely wrong. Distorted and yeah, and and I think that's damaged young men um, in their expectations of what young women's bodies are like and what they should do in sex and 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 how and really messed up issues like consent, about pleasure, and not about performance, right? Which is yeah, all of coolness. Yeah. I mean, in my book, I, I I say to try and avoid watching. I mean, that sounds very judgmental, but I, I think it does put women into a performative stance that they should do this, or they should do that. And I don't think that's a brilliant way to learn about sex. No. Was that in four minutes? Did that's I manage it? Absolutely perfect. Okay. And really interesting and a brilliant analogy, actually. Thank you very much. So now we're going to audience questions. And Sandra asks, it seems like the NHS is crumbling when it comes to mental health provision. Is this true? And if you were in charge, what what are the first things you'd address? Oh gosh, that's an, that's such a difficult question. I could stand on High Park on a on a soapbox and talk about that for about four hours and be really angry and cry. It's I don't know what to say. It does really upset you. It really upsets me. It really upsets me. It's it's a really it's really terribly, terribly sad that there's so much need and there isn't any provision. And the pressure, I mean, obviously I care tremendously about young women and I fear, and this is a terrible thing to say, that CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, could go the way of NHS dentistry. That, so to work in CAMS, to work at the pace, at the level of risk, at, with the numbers coming at you, not really being able to give them the time and attention and meet their needs. And the reflective space that you need as a therapist, the, the, the multidisciplinary work, and also just the firefighting. You know, when there's such a need and there's only a tiny, tiny amount of supply, you just spend all your time trying to work out where you should put that need. Which is the greatest need, which is the suicide risk, which is the... Absolutely. And what I would do about it is I would think about why we are struggling. The answer is that at the moment, the answer is more CAMs and more trained staff. But of course, the real answer is we don't want young people to be suffering like this, which what countries in the world have a better model for mental health, which children are suffering the most? What what can we learn about? I mean, I've made I've made some suggestions this evening, but uh, am I right? Something has I mean, to change, though, is what you're saying. It's not of life isn't working. The education system and health systems in this country work separately. And so the education system, they put in these, these dictates on education and on kids' grades and on the grade inflation where we now have gone from an A to an A star to an eight and a nine and all this pressure that kids are under without realising that, on the other hand, that the health service you know, what impact that has on children's mental health. So that's sort of, that's what I would be thinking about. I'd be thinking about prevention. How can we create, in New Zealand, you know, all the government decisions have to be put through the the lens of not GDP, but well-being, the well-being of the nation. And I think that's what we should be doing, really. We should be certainly running the education system to think about the well-being of, of children, not 
what, what qualifications they get. If we take care of their well-being, the, the qualifications will come. That's very good. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, thank you. Mo asks, if a young woman from an underprivileged background comes to you with anxiety stroke depression, how do you balance wider systemic things like personal problems, e.g. race, class, sexuality, stigma? Have things got more pronounced post-George Floyd, cost of living crisis? These are big questions, my goodness. It's a very important, and they're really important questions, all of them. Yes, and I think, um, I don't know that I can answer that question. I, I don't think that we've seen so much the cost of living crisis just in terms of the time that it takes to get to a kid into, into, into CAMS. I, we certainly see the, the disadvantage of, 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 you know, underprivilege. Um, yes, and all those- are that, that your, your outcomes are much worse if you, that intersection of race, class, sexuality and sex lbgtq young people have much worse mental health don't they yeah and 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 mental health problems are overrepresented in people from a lower social economic status and also i mean the other thing is that of course they have less access to services you know because coming to services i mean i was discussing today with a case where you know single mom and 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 a great deal of trauma with the young person and feeling very, very low and, and, and difficult. And, and, you know, the single mom couldn't take time off work to come and bring her to the sessions. And was it safe to have the sessions when she's experienced a lot of trauma? You know, if we're doing trauma work with somebody, you can't really put a young person on a train to go back home on their own. So all of that intersects, which is why we need to be thinking about how we prevent young people feeling yeah. And of course, we're never going to prevent. I mean, difficult feelings are part of life. You know, in your work on grief, you know, Julia, you know, difficult feelings come without help. But there are lots of things we could be doing to make, you know, more equitable society, but also a society where children aren't under so much pressure. Yeah. And then Ian and Charles have both asked um, how much, so they really like the content, how much of this applies equally to boys? Well, quite a lot, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. So. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I started with the friends chapter, and the friends chapter, girls' friends uh, are quite, on average, they're quite different from boys' uh, boys' relationships. Uh, girls' friends are quite, can be quite toxic. I'm sure anyone who's primary or secondary school kid would agree with that girl. Um, the ins and outs, the complexities of that. And obviously then some of the chapters about um, love and sex and relationship, that one again. And again, the food and eating, weight and shape chapter, that's very much related. But um, for example, there is a chapter on attachment and in, in that I had to send off the chapter to somebody where I was using a diagram and from a research institute. And they, she's saying, oh, this is relevant to boys too. I've got four sons. Why are you not writing this to boys? So I think there is quite a lot that's relevant to, to boys and the um, emotions um, and anxiety. I guess I, I also, I mean, there's a lot of interest about psychology amongst teenage girls. It's the most popular A-level subject, I think, for girls, not for boys. 
uh, very popular degree level. And so I was also writing to them, to young people who are interested in their own psychology. I, I don't know whether boys would be interest, so interested in reading that. I'm not sure. And F says, do you think these things, the things that we've talked about, um, can help beyond adolescence and families? I'm just going to say a short yes. I think they can, yeah. Um, I mean, actually, the Friends chapter is very popular amongst um, every woman who reads, hi, this is just like my friendships, this goes on. Um, so, yes, that's a very common one to... to I mean, I suppose I was trying to write it to teenage girls because they're struggling so much. And I was trying to write it into a style that was appealing to young girls. So which I sort of hopefully I've honed from writing, working with them and writing therapeutic letters, but using the language that they they use as well and and things like that. So the sort of examples would be examples of things that they would talk about or the some of the language, the text speak. Brilliant. And Annette Q says, how do you recommend a parent-child rebuild trust after, say, a self-harm attempt? Parents are often super anxious and this can just add to the child's animosity, straight reluctance to want to engage with their parents. Gosh, that's very complicated and an important question. I think this goes back to, to warmth and and boundaries, doesn't it? And the sort of rules, as I as I said earlier, but it's really about boundaries, isn't it? And it's about how we love someone when not liking their behaviour. This would be true for an eating disorder as well, wouldn't it? It would be, yeah. Um, and and trying to set those boundaries. I mean, I I think I think one of the most important, one of the most, the biggest struggles in in parenting a teenager is is that kind of being open to what they bring you because really we should be thrilled when they bring it and one of the main reasons I think they don't bring it as I said earlier is is because we tend to offer advice or solutions or why didn't you do this and I think it's connecting with that kind of empathy first and really trying to understand and that's why the book called you don't understand me because that's what teenagers say and often young people say that to me oh you don't understand it's so hard to explain and say I know I don't understand, but I'm really trying to understand. Explain it to me again. Explain it to me in different words. Is it like this? Is it like that? So in answer to this question in rebuilding trust, it's like being open to the communication to sort of talk about what happened and be empathic to what they need. Like, tell me what I can do. What, what am I doing wrong? That is that what you're saying? Yeah. What can we do together, collaborate. What can we... I think, I think absolutely that question, what can we do? What, what's the solution? I mean, to finding the solution, you have to understand what was the feeling before it happened. What's the pain? It's never the behaviour, is it? It's something's hurting. It's, it's, something's hurting. It's and sometimes, so when I think about self-harm, some, it's that often it's that boiling up of just the moment, just feeling unbearable just feeling like I can't bear this moment. This is just too painful for me. And then thinking about the emotional regulation. What do we do when those moments get too painful? How do we manage them? What would be a thing to do? So sometimes that's about, and, and that's the point where we, you know, sitting with that struggle, what is the thing we do when that pain gets too much? That's the point where we sometimes want to say, well, just call me, just phone me or just come downstairs or something like that. We want to offer a sort of a neat solution to it. And 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 that may end up being the solution, but we have to go through a process of, of them 
getting that we understand that feeling and thinking through all the possible ideas about what that might look like. And it's through the exploration and the listening and the empathy that you build trust. Because that was the main question, how do you rebuild trust? And the trust, as you're describing it, is being built by wanting to understand, by caring without controlling, and by giving them a voice that is fully heard. And if their voice is fully heard, it helps them understand and hear their own voice. And then that can begin to help them make sense for themselves of what is the conflicts of what's going on in them and what is the source of the pain. I mean, in the question, I guess the trust, which trust? Your trust as a parent or the young person's trust or both? It It must be both. It must be both. And I guess... Can we do one one more? It's a complicated question. I'm sorry I can't answer it perfectly. No, you're not... To the parent. (laughs) You sound like a teenage girl wanting to do it perfectly. There there is no perfect answer to any questions. So Lou says, what do you mean by emotions spilling all over the place that you're worried about? And what is the difference between this and a normal emotional level of expression? Ha ha. Ha ha. That's a good question. I mean, teenagers are very emotional. I mean, they are. We know that the hormones, the brain development, they are very uh, uh, emotion. One (laughs) example, I think the example for you to get when I I think about emotional spilling, I suppose self-harm can be an idea about emotions spilling all over the place or getting very drunk or... Doing, engaging in risky behaviours, but it all could also be, I remember seeing somebody once in therapy and they came in and they really told me a whole heap of stuff every week. And I felt like I was getting a really good engagement with them and, and really helping them express some really difficult things. And then I discovered that they were also seeing their school counsellor. And not only that, they were going to their school counsellor and they had a little sort of, there was a sort of well-being area of a, um, I'm not quite sure how it was set up, but there was some sort of receptionist in this this part of the school, um, and and they were also spilling their their all their emotions to this receptionist and spending quite a lot of time there. And I guess that's an example of when emotions are spilling everywhere. And they because need containment, don't they? They need containment, yeah, and because we need to to have emotional containment to to do our work and to engage in a family meal or to see our friends we can't be spilling emotions everywhere but we that doesn't mean we shouldn't ever talk about them and so in some ways when it's too much is when it feels they're completely out of control that they don't have breaks is what you're saying but when you can by the environment that you can create that they have circuit breakers that they can slow themselves down by taking a breath by going for a walk by walking out, making a cup of tea, coming back, doing things that making sure they have enough sleep, that those regulate them, allows them to have a kind of expression of a big emotion, but also gives them ways to bring down the gears in themselves so that they don't scare themselves by being overwhelmed by their own emotion. So to answer more of your questions and to hear fully what Tara thinks about these things, you should go to her book, which is a wonderful book. Um, Really, really excellent book. And I highly recommend it. Thank you, Julia. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you all for your really interesting and sort of powerful, important questions. And the truth is those that are listening and those that are reading Tara's books are probably the people that are doing a good enough job. And it's Mm -hmm. the people that don't, that aren't. Um, So everyone have a lovely evening, lovely being with you all, lovely seeing you Tara. Lovely seeing you too Julian, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone take care, Bye. bye.
This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Tara Porter and was presented by Julia Samuel. It was produced by Luke Naylor Perrett and the show is made by Dana Outcolt and myself. I'll be back on Friday to interview Daniel Pick about the history of mind control. See you then and thanks for listening.